Amen. You can be seated. And as Julio mentioned, this is a family service for us. And so kids, I'm glad you're in here because you can help me because we need some uh, extra wisdom and intelligence and you can bring that to us. And so uh, we're in the middle of a series in Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bible and want to turn to Ecclesiastes, it would basically be in the middle. So you can go in the middle and if you find Psalms, you can go. Uh, to your right a little bit. And uh, we're in Ecclesiastes. And uh, kids, if you're going to learn to live well, one of the most important things you, one of the most important skills you have to develop is the ability to choose between things that could be good, but then something that could be better. So you're learning to choose between things, things that are good and things that are better. So, all right, so we're going to do a little pop quiz to start to test our ability to choose between um, two things. So which is the better option? So um, don't be afraid. Just kind of shout out what you think. You won't embarrass your parents, I promise. So don't worry. Um, and so here, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll set you up. So you listen. So it's things like, all right, is it better to sleep in the street or sleep in your bed? Bed. Okay, good. Very good. See, it's easy. Um, or example, like uh, here in Florida, if you're going to build a house, is it better to build a house with Legos or with bricks? Bricks. You would rather bricks. Okay. If you were going to do a job and I said, come over and um, clean our, um, I don't know, clean our closet and I'll pay you. I will either pay you with toilet paper or I'll pay you with dollar bills. Which type of paper do you want? The dollar bills, yes. In general, dollar bills are better than toilet paper most of the time. <laughs> now, sometimes it's hard to tell. So let's think about, all right, one skills in life is learning to make better choices when you're eating. So, like, is it better to eat pizza or a salad? Pizza. It depends on what you mean by better. Like, if you need food to comfort your heart... Pizza's better. But if we're talking about food to actually fuel <laughs> your body, uh, we have to begrudgingly give the nod to salad. All right, but what about things like, all right, is it better to eat ice cream or to eat cake? That's a hard one. And there, there are certain things in life you just shouldn't have to choose. So I, I eat both of them together. But ice cream or cake? All right. Um, uh, which is better, Marvel superheroes or DC superheroes? Oh, that's a handful of DC kids. So, yeah. um, all right. Which is it better, boys? Is it better to play Fortnite or to play football? I don't know. All right, kids, if you are um, going to invest, would you, is it better to invest in Amazon or invest in Apple? Apple. None of you have any idea. You don't even know what that means. <laughs> we don't know. We'd have to ask. All right, here's an easy one. This will be an easy, so this is a, this is a no-brainer. Um, if you, uh, is it better to be a Florida Gator or a Georgia Bulldog? Which is a... <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a simple one. Is it better to go? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> Is it better to go to the mountains? Better to go to the beach? You know, some things. Yeah. Thank good. All right. Yes, energy. So, on your, kids, on your bulletin, you've got some things. So, look through there and choose the thing that's better because some things is clearly better. 
Like, um, you know, it's clearly better to get paid with dollars than other types of paper. That's clearly better. Some things, it's kind of hard to know. Like, is it better to eat cake or eat ice cream? Well, it kind of depends on, it, okay, it's together. It kind of depends on your taste, your feelings. And then some things... Um, it's just hard to know. Now, what we're going to look at is if you want to learn to live well, you're going to have to learn to know how to choose the thing that's better. And we're going through a series in Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a book that helps us learn how to live well. It's a gift to us, but it's a gift that will kind of, it'll burst all of our bubbles of pretension and false assumptions. And in where we are, and we're in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, this actually is one of the more difficult sections in Ecclesiastes. And you can walk through the story that the preacher is telling us, and he's saying um, chapters 1 through 6 are all about the things we pursue. What are you striving after? What is your energy going towards? What are you living for? Your work, your family, your relationships. What's your energy? And chapters 1 and 2 kind of walk you down this path that most people choose. They strive after either success at work, accomplishments, to build great things. But that leaves them unsatisfied. And then they strive after physical pleasures. That leaves them unsatisfied. And then there's a shift starting in, in chapter 3, verse 16, that runs all the way to the end of 6, where he starts looking at injustice and oppression. And he starts wrestling with the reality of oppression. And most people try to find meaning in their life, either through accomplishments or through physical pleasure or through some cause something to give their life to where they're fighting injustice. And that's the middle of this section. And one of the things this section is trying to do is disorient us so we understand how difficult, how uncertain life under the sun is. But in the midst of that, he gives us five um, or really six things where he says, well, in the midst of that difficulty, this is better. So you need to know that as you're walking through this challenging, difficult world that's filled with vain hopes and filled with injustice, you need to know these things are better. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through four of those, kind of four lessons so that we can know it's better to choose this than that. And the way we're going to structure it is in this section, there's kind of two big lessons that we need to learn. We need to learn how to share, and then we need to learn when to speak. And these two lessons get at the very heart of two of the most important things in our life, our personal relationships and then our words. So let's pick up the story. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. And the first lesson we want to learn is learn how to share. We need to think about our relationships. And uh, let's look at the first thing. Verse 9 through 12 is going to tell us something about our, in essence, our partnerships. And in essence, here it teaches us that it's better to be with friends than be alone. Or another way to say it, it's better to share than to be selfish. So follow along verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
So this first little, it's better, it's better for you to share than for you to be selfish. It's better for you to have healthy relationships than to be all alone. And this is one of the key biblical themes. One of our callings is we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. And if you think about how wild that is, how challenging, how remarkable, you know, we are called to actually to be as happy when our neighbor, when our friend succeeds as we are when we succeed. Or we're actually called to, uh, to be as hurt when they're hurt as if we are hurt. And this is type of talking about real thick, deep relationships. And so two are better than one. It's better to be in relationships. And then you can look through here and there's four things. See if you can dig them out. There's four things that he said are an advantage if you're in healthy relationships. First is the profit or the reward. Two are better than one because they have great reward. So there's reward in relationships. You can do more with others than you can do all alone. It's the dynamic of how certain teams and groups of people can become great. Because sometimes like two plus two equals four. Sometimes two plus two equals like negative three. And sometimes two plus two equals ten. Where you can have like four people, but they can do these outsized things because there's profit in healthy relationships. Another thing notice is there's resilience. For if they fall, one will lift them up. But woe to him who is alone. When he falls, who will lift him up? And one of the gifts that relationships are to us is who's going to be there when you fall? You know, this is an interesting turn of phrase because it begins like if you fall, and then it, it, it highlights when you fall. And the reality is you're going to fall. And if you're all alone, the question of who's going to be there to lift you up? One of my best friends growing up was a bull rider. And he used to joke that when you're riding bulls, it's not a matter of if you're going to get hurt. It's just a matter of when and how bad. And the reality is reality is like a bull. And uh, sometimes it's more vicious than a 2,000-pound steer by the name of Slayer. And the reality, if you live long enough in life, it's not a matter of if you're going to get hurt. It's just a matter of when and how bad and who's going to be there to pick you up when you fall. And that's the health of relationships. It helps you be resilient. Notice verse 11. The other thing is comfort. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? See, this is in a world that um, how many of you have your own room? Kids, raise your hand if you have your own room. All right, so if you have your own room or grew up in your own room, you do realize you're like in the elite 1% in the world, like world history. The vast majority of people in the history of the world have not been able to sleep or stay in their own room. So when it talks about when two lie together, this is just a reality of how you stay protected and how you stay warm in worlds with very small living spaces or a lot of people sleep uh, you know, outside. So one of the things it's talking about is just the nature of comfort. You need someone there with you to comfort you. And then notice the last thing it gives is strength. This threefold cord cannot be broken. And so there's these tremendous gifts that relationships are to us. They give us um, profit, resilience, comfort, strength. But the challenge is they're costly. Real relationships cost you things. 
And we live in a world where one of our most precious things we feel is our independence. And one of the challenges with with you'll ever have good, healthy relationships, are you willing to pay the relational price? Real relationships take time. They take presence. They take emotional vulnerability. You have to bear emotional cost. But did you hear it? There's three times where he says there's three words um, if you are alone, alone, alone. That's to be a haunting echo. We were not meant to be alone. And for some of us who are a little more introverted, sometimes we need alone time. But if your alone time turns into an alone life, you're going to be left empty and you'll be left alone. So the reality is that the relationships we have, um, the most important thing that's going to determine how well you live is the quality of your relationships. And I don't know when it happens. There's some, there's not like a definitive date, but kind of the most important relationships, kids in your life up until you're about maybe 10, 12, 13, somewhere in that age, it's obviously it's your parents, the quality of your relationship to your parents. And then something happens, this terrifying day when their uh, influence recedes and then it shifts to your peers and your peers become the most important relationship in your life. But here you see relationships, healthy relationships are actually key. It's better to share than it is to be selfish. And one of our worldly tensions, we desperately need and desire them. But then the question is, are we willing to pay the price to have them? All right, let's think of the second thing connected with relationships here is look in verse 13. It's better, better was a poor and wise youth So it's better to be a child, it's better to be poor and wise than to be old and a foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne through his own kingdom. He had been born poor, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. And I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace. And there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now this section, this little snippet that the the preacher, he's painting a picture. And it's a little bit hard to kind of unravel. One of my favorite Hebrew or Old Testament commentators is Derek Kidner. And uh, he said a couple of these verses, verse 14, 15, and 16, are some of the hardest verses in all of the Old Testament to translate. But you can get a sense of the picture that he's painting. He's painting a picture of this king who now is old and foolish, but the, the king actually started in prison. He started at the very bottom of society. He was uh, in prison and he was poor, and then he was able to move up all the way to the the top of society where he became the king. It's kind of this remarkable rags to riches story. But he's giving you a warning. He's saying, don't look at that progression, that elevation, that incredible exaltation, and don't actually envy that. Because he got to a point where he came to the top and then he became hard. He forgot what it was like. He lost his empathy. He forgot what it was like to be down here, and he became foolish, and he refused to take advice. His heart became hard, and he stopped learning. He said, it was actually better for you to stay poor and be wise than to be elevated to the very top of society and become a fool. It's better to be wise than to be popular. 
Because look at one of the things he even says at the very end. Even if he gets to the top, notice what he says in 16. There's no end to all of the people, all of whom he led. So he, he led uh, a mass of people and elevated to the very top. But then it says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. No matter what he did, he got to the top and he was forgotten. He had all of the popularity you could achieve, and then yet it was forgotten. And this is an important lesson to us as we think about relationships, what relationships actually matter, what pursuit actually matters. I right, pull up the next one, uh, Graham. We're going to go. Here's a quiz. I want to pause for a moment and take a, this is a Snoopy quiz. So this is a quiz that Charles Schultz often, who's the inventor of Snoopy and Peanuts, um, he would often, when he would speak, he would ask people to do this quiz, or he would often use it as a pop quiz for his own heart to reorient him to what matters. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to take the quiz. So you can, um, if you want to try and show off to those around you, you can try and answer, or let's just see, there's 30 names you got to try and get in questions one, two, three, four, and five, and we'll see how many you do. So, I, well, hang on, hang on, well, all right, there we go. We got them all up. All right, so start with number one. So let's go. Name the five the wealthiest people in the world. So see if you can name. Yeah, so you can just say them out, or you can say them out to those around you. See how many you can get. Yeah. You can listen in if you don't know. People are giving you the answers. All right, see if you can name the last five Heisman Trophy winners. Thor? No, wrong category. That was my child, Thor. All right, see if you can name the last five Miss America winners. Or how about the last 10 Nobel Prize, or just any 10 Nobel Prize winners? Actually, if you live in Laureate Park, you have an advantage. Because this little FYI about our neighborhood, all of the streets are named after Nobel Laureate winners. That's Laureate Park. Ah, so you can just, you, you, you can cheat. You can just, I, do I know, I, I don't even know 10 street names here. But... All right, then name the last five World Series winners. This is a World Series. All right, now think, 30 names, how well did you do? Uh, not very good. Maybe get four or five total. All right. So, I mean, these are people who've made it to the very top, the upper echelon in their field. And m many of them, they're, they're still alive. And we don't even know them. Now, he would give himself this next test. So, uh, Graham, bring up the next one. And then think in your mind as you answer this one, uh, think the first one. Right, list three teachers who aided your journey through school. Or name number two, name three friends who have helped you through tough times. Or number three, name three folks who have mentored you through life. Or number four, think of five folks who you enjoy spending time with. Or number five, think of three people who have made you feel appreciated. How much easier was that second quiz? A lot easier. And what it gets at, what he's trying to do in his, when, in his own heart, he was trying to remind himself of what really matters. That what really matters in life is not seeking after this popularity or this fame, but the depth and quality of your relationships. And so the question for us, we pause and just think, why do we not have more relationships? Why do we not have more friends? 
I mean, one of the core tensions of the modern life is that we desperately need and desire relationships, but often aren't willing to pay the price. So what's the price that has to be paid? And here the beauty and the glory of the gospel is you not only when you come to Christ and when he transforms you and when you receive him, when you come to Christ, you actually receive the friend that your heart desperately needs. And then by the spirit, you get the power to have friendships that you desire. You think about how he was trying to explain to his disciples on the night before he went to the cross what he was doing for them. And in John 15, what are some of the words he used? He said he used actually the concept of friendship to explain it. He says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And see, we were made for that deep friendship of walking, Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden. We were made to walk with God in friendship. But sin, what it does, it sting as it separates. It breaks. It breaks hearts. It breaks relationships. It breaks friendships. And the gift and the glory of the gospel is that he comes and he pays the cost of true friendship so we can experience it. I mean, if you want to have real relationships, you have to be vulnerable with people. And has there ever been anyone who's been more vulnerable for us than Christ on the cross? Was there ever an act of vulnerability quite like that? And if you're going to have real relationships, you're going to have to stay and be there even when it gets difficult. And think about the challenge that Christ, even on the cross... He stayed. And so the glory of the gospel is that Jesus, the relationship we can have with him and the relationship he opens up for us is that he's better. If I have him, I now am drawn into this threefold cord that can't be broken. And now I have the strength, the courage and the freedom to be vulnerable with others. To have him is better than having popularity. To have him, you actually have the friend your heart truly needs and desperately desire. So Jesus is better. It's better to be in relationships. It's better to be wise. And in him we receive both. Now let's think about the second thing, lesson, which is learning when to speak. Look in chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing or evil, or that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter, utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. You know, often kids, we teach you nursery rhymes. And one of the sad things about so many of the nursery rhymes is that they lie to you. Um, like you can fill this, fill in the blank on this one. You know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but what? Words will never do what? They'll never hurt me. That's actually not true. Words will wound you far worse than sticks and stones. Sticks and stones can break your physical body, but words can actually shatter your soul. And so words, you actually are in possession of weapons of mass destruction. And it's your words your words have the ability to give life, and your words have the ability to bring death. So it is a serious thing. What do we do with our words? 
Are they life-giving or they, uh, do they bring destruction? And one of the things in chapter 5 from verse 1 through 7, he says, you should learn when to speak. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. And this first section has to do with our praise. When we come to worship, what do we come for? And here it's better. Notice, it's better to draw near to listen. You're coming to hear. That's better than offering the sacrifice of fools. Or if you want to fill in the blank, it's better to be silent than, than to be silly at worship. Because we come to hear. You know, if you think about the fundamental call of God's people, we are people who hear. The Shema, hear, O Israel, hear, hear. The Lord your God is one. We're called to hear. Or maybe your grandmother told you that there's a reason. God gave you two ears and one mouth. You're supposed to hear more than you speak. That's good wisdom. It's wise advice to learn to listen more than we talk or become quick to listen. For God's people, the primary organ where we encounter him is through our ears. We hear his voice. And what this is talking about is actually your posture when you come to church. Like, why do you come? Do you come to hear? We must come to draw, we must come to listen and to hear. You know, there's probably worse things that could you know, if you look at verses 1 through 3, they're, they're subtle, they're challenging, they're haunting, especially for people who lead churches and lead in worship. You know, there's worse things that all of the leaders in churches throughout America could do than spend about a day with one another and asking themselves, um, are we offering the sacrifice of fools? I mean, think about verse 1. That's a haunting verse. It's better to draw near to listen than offer the sacrifice of fools. Sacrifice is, is worship. How you worship the Lord. Do you come with sacrifices? How do you enter into his presence? Now, since Christ has died and risen, our sacrifices are sacrifices of prayer and praise. But notice, he says, there's a sacrifice of fools. That people do them and they don't even know they're acting evil. It's evil. And so it's worth it. How can we do those things? You know, I think the subtle temptation as a preacher, we can offer, I can offer the sacrifice of fools by subtly thinking that what I have to say is more important, more interesting, more relevant than opening up and expounding God's word. It's one of the reasons we want to commit to just walking through it sequentially because the most important thing in your life is do you hear his voice? And where you hear his voice is through his word, the spirit embodying and dwelling and then empowering his word. And you can think about, I wonder what he has in mind when he talks about the worship. That's the sacrifice of fools. Now look at the next section because there's some connection. That's about your praises, but the next section is about the promises you make. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better. So here, what's better here? Here's what I'm going to say. It's better, it's better to not make promises than to make them and break them. So it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. 
So it's better not even to make promises than to make them and break them. Do you notice some of the parallels? What he's getting at is how foolish and hasty. The word, the, the verse two, rash with your mouth and hasty with your heart. So your mouth is running away with you and your heart is easily given to things. He says, don't be this way. And then notice um, verse six, it says, let not your mouth lead you to sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The image is that you've made kind of big promises. And when the messenger comes to have you fulfill those promises, you say, well, well, well I didn't actually, that's not what I meant. I, I just mean it. And it was really a mistake. That's what he's getting at. But notice how God views those things. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So one is about worship. Don't be hasty with your mouth in worship. And the other one's about your work. Don't be foolish and reckless with your words or God will destroy it. And that's a hard thing for us just kind of as Americans because one of the things, I mean, you, know, you go to other places in the world and their perception of us is that we're loud. We're big talkers. I mean, even like it's, it's just basic American business 101 that if you want to succeed and you want to thrive, you have to have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Don't know why it has to be hairy, but it needs to be hairy. That's from Jim Collins, uh, the Built to Last. Organization. You need to be big dreamers who do big things. And notice what? He wants to just put a little check on those and say big dreams is big busyness and lots of words. Lots of words. So the more words, the more opportunities you have to fall. But now let's think, and we'll close with this as we think about why are our promises, why are the vows so important? Why is this something that God takes so seriously? And here's, think about the story. Let's illustrate this idea with the story of Peter. So think about Peter. So on the same night that Jesus told his disciples where he was trying to explain what he was going to do, he says, I don't call you servants. I now call you friends. You are my friends. And then they then left that dinner. And right before he was going to be taken and, and, and tried and put on the cross, he asked his friends to pray with him. But he warned them before he went. And he said, you can look at Matthew 26. There's this interesting exchange. Um, but all of the gospel writers tell us about it. Is he warns them at the dinner. He warns that they're all going to fall away. And do you remember how Peter responds? He responds as a big talker. And he says, even if everybody else falls away, I will not. Even if they all deny you, I will die for you. And he makes this big claim in Matthew chapter 26, verse 35. And then by verse 70, do you know what's happened? He's gone through the night and three times he's challenged, not will you die for him, but do you even know him? And he breaks his promise. He breaks his vow. He denies. And on the third time, he denies with an oath where he does the opposite of a vow. He brings a curse. He says, I don't know him. And then the, the rooster crows because Jesus predicted it would happen before the rooster would crow. And then when it crows, it says that he left in verse 70 and wept bitterly. And here you see the story that Peter, all of a sudden, he made this incredible promise. The promise was broken. And because he broke his promise, it broke him. And that actually gets us at the power of our promises. See, there's a destructive power in promises that when we break them, they break us. But when they're restored and we make them, they make us. The reason why it broke Peter, because all of a sudden he now was a torn man. 
See, here's a question when you, like, look at Matthew chapter 26. Which Peter is the real Peter? Is it the Peter of verse 35 who stands confidently, if I will do this, I promise I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll die? Is it the one that makes bold claims? Or is it the one who denies and runs and hides? Which is the real Peter? And one of the challenges in our world is we are encouraging all of you to find, get in touch with the real you and be authentic to who you are and and be true to yourself. But the problem is even in our own self, we're conflicted. We're broken. We're torn. Which is the real Peter, the bold promise maker or the, the denier? And see, what happens is that the promises we make actually form our identity, They're identity-shaping. That's why it's so wounding when we break them and they're they're torn. But the problem is our desires are in flux. There's a conflict. And so we can see this as it plays out, like in our own relationships in our lives. I mean, just think about relationships. We have this deep desire to seek security. So we want security and secure bonds and attachment, but we want to maintain our freedom at all costs. You can't have both. Some people, you can see it in our work. Like we want the security of a steady paycheck, but we want the freedom and, uh, of being entrepreneurs. You actually, you can't have both. There's, we're torn. So you can look at Peter's life and ask, all right, how was he healed? How was Peter restored? And in John chapter 21, Jesus takes him. And do you remember the way Jesus restores him? He cooks him breakfast, calls him to himself. And then three times he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Went three denials. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Is then healed by three. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's actually the love that we receive from him and our love for him that heals our fractured selves. And what we need and what Peter needed and what we all need is we actually understand deep in our own heart that in some ways we're all promise breakers. That's why we feel pulled and feel torn. But when we look to Christ on the cross, we see that here Christ is the ultimate promise keeper. He's the ultimate promise keeper, but he was treated like the ultimate promise breaker. So all of us promise breakers can enter into a relationship with the promise keeper. And so we celebrate that Jesus is better. He is better. He's better than my securities. He's better than my insecurities. He's better than any popularity. He's better than any prosperity. He's better than any desires. It's only through him that I can be made whole. And if you think about it, there's so many of us that just feel, you feel torn. I mean, probably the people in our culture that I look at, the the promises that our world makes, and then see people trying to grasp to get them, some of you that I feel the most sorry for are you working mothers who are held up this image. Like, I mean, it's one of the taglines of our city. You, You can have it all. So here's the image. You can have it all. You can have the dynamic, incredible career. You can have the Pinterest perfect living room. You can have the, you know, the, pol- the kids who are on a polo advertisement. You can have incredible relationships. You can have mimosas and cinnabons on Saturday morning, all the while looking perfect. Like you can have it all. And then if you actually try, you understand how ripped apart you feel. Because you can't. And we're being pulled in so many different directions. And the question is, what can heal us and put us back together again? And for Peter and for all of us, it's an encountering and experiencing the love of Christ. I mean, Christ says, come to me. 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you the rest you are seeking. I can put it all back together. You're seeking relationships but aren't willing to pay the cost. I paid the cost so you can have them. Come to me. You feel torn because you're trying to commit to so many different things. There's only one ultimate commitment that will bring you life. And from that will flow healing and life to all the other ones. And I'll let you know which of all these things you can actually have and experience and enjoy and which ones you don't need at all. And are just weights and burdens. Come to me, and you can find life, because my Father so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave so you can experience that love. In just a minute, we're about to set up communion, and what communion is is our weekly reminder of the, the price he paid and then the promises we've made. So communion is our weekly reminder where we are a part, um, we're the recipients of an incredible promise. The promise that if you come to me, and if you turn from your sins, that because of my blood, Jesus says, you can be washed clean. But then it's also our weekly just renewal of the promise that he's made to be our God and we've made to be his people. I was thinking about this concept this week because we were, um, Joe and Dana Barrett, they celebrated 20 years of their marriage, uh, wedding anniversary, 20 years of marriage, and did this little sweet kind of just covenant renewal ceremony of just reminding ourselves of the vows that they made then and recommitting to the vows going forward. And it's just such a beautiful concept. And I thought that's, that's exactly what we do every week because every week we need this reminder that we've um, had these vows and commitments made Promises made, promises given. So as we transition to that time, we're going to spend a few minutes praying for one another, praying for the different uh, people here in this room and who will experience these different things. We're going to pray that our relationships would be healthy, that our words would be life-giving. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the healing power of your gospel. And so we confess now that we need your help. We confess now that we desperately know we need relationships, but often don't know how to bring them about. We don't, or often aren't willing to pay the price. And we give you praise that your son paid the ultimate price so that we can have our relationships restored with you and through him. And now through him, we can be an agent of healing for all of the broken relationships around us. So we ask that you would help us to do that. We praise you that you call your people to come into your presence so they hear your voice. So I pray for everyone here in this room right now. I ask that by your spirit, you would personally address them and they would hear your voice. And that you've promised to give us the grace that we have in our times of need. And we confess every person in here has needs. And it could be the need of a word of encouragement. could be a need of a word of hope. could be the need of a word of conviction. Where you're telling them to, to stop something or telling them to start something. But I pray that you would help us all to hear your word. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.